0: Well, i my name's Tim. If I don't know you and you don't know me, I do this amongst a few other things. And uh we're gonna continue on in the book of Exodus. And I'm just gonna tell you it's gonna be fun because we've we're hitting the Ten Commandments today. I'm not even gonna let, let any suspense go. We're just we're getting into the Ten Commandments today. So but to start things off, I, I do have a question for you. Because I like to start with a question. Get our brains going, wrapping around, kind of some core ideas. Um, when uh, you were in school or if you're at work, have, have you ever been asked to do a team project? And then I, I, wanna, I want you to raise hands here. When you're uh, asked or forced to do a team project... Do you enjoy it? Raise your hand if you enjoy that. Oh, I don't see a whole lot of hands being raised here. I wonder why. I wonder why. Yeah, I, uh, I was thinking, I don't know a whole lot of people that really get jazzed up about team projects. I remember uh, when I was in, in college, I had a gospels class, with Professor John Weatherly And he, uh, he would assign us some group readings and assignments And uh, I, I had a pretty decent group But you know, in a lot of those situations We all know that different people play a different part in group projects, right? There's the highly studious person That does all the reading All the writing Let's just say it, all the work Uh, they're the the couple of people that show up to the team meetings because you know participation counts for something if that counts as participation and then there's the person that does absolutely nothing or as little as they can get by doing and because of that a couple outcomes can happen one The person or people that muscle through all of the work can do such a great job that when the entire team uh, on the project come forward to show their work, everybody gets credit. Even the guy that the first time they ever showed up was for the time in front of the class to make it look like they were there the whole time, right? Now, what happens if you get poor marks? Marks on the project who gets the blame oh that's right the people that did all the work so yeah I, you know I think a lot of people don't like the whole team assignment thing the team project thing and so as I was thinking about this I, uh, my, my brain went to the game of tug of war now uh, tug of war has been a recent phrase in my house, uh, primarily because of my son Leo and our dog Mo. And this is Mo on the on the screen here. Mo went to stay at Zach's Pets uh, Services. I don't remember what they're called. They're in Roanoke, and and uh, they they knew it was his birthday. This was his 14th birthday. He got a hat. Yeah, he's doing pretty good. So uh, I mentioned he's fourteen. My son always wants to play tug of war, and when I think of playing tug of war with a dog, I, I think of this picture here. Now, this is not Mo, or this—I don't know this dog. If you know this dog, I'm sorry if your dog is on screen here. This is not. But uh, I'm 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 thinking about the rope here, and it's we have a, a rope for for Mo. It's about the size of this handheld mic here. I didn't use the mic on, on purpose this morning for the prop, but it can give you an example. Um, now, Leo will say that he wants to play tug of war with Mo, which tug of war normally means that the dog has one end of the rope and you have the other, and basically you're holding on for dear life and, until the dog rips your arm off. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not sure yet if. Leo knows tug of war is the game. I think he sees the rope at this point and just thinks the rope is tug of war. And what he really wants to do is just throw the rope for Mo. Which, admittedly, at 14, all Mo normally wants to do is lay around and sleep. But every now and then, if you pick up a toy, he will turn into four instead of 14 and he'll just go at it. And Leo loves and giggles when Mo goes for the toy. But, of course, growing up, that wasn't what I thought about with tug-of-war. I thought about this. It was a yearly, uh, a yearly activity during field day. Or uh, any time you got to be outdoors in gym class, you would play tug-of-war. And, of course, if you've ever played tug-of-war, you know the rules. Uh, you know, two teams get on the side of a long rope, and the object is to pull the other team into the middle of whatever it is that they don't want to be pulled into. In this particular case, uh, they don't want to be pulled into that. She's hanging on for dear life there. Got her feet planted. Um, These guys are laughing because they know what's about to happen. I don't know. That's just... um, now, of course, if you, if you wanted to pull an elaborate prank on the other team, your team gets together and they agree that on the sound of a particular word someone shouts out, everyone on your team lets go so that the other team just collapses uh, from their power. That's not a very nice way to play. Okay, here's, here's the point of tug-of-war, though. The deal with tug-of-war is is that it takes everybody on the team, everybody on the team, to give it their all, to try to pull the other team forward and win the game. And unlike team projects at work or school, uh, if the, I don't know, if the person in the middle decides to take a lunch break in the middle of it, or read something on their phone, which we didn't have those when I was a kid, but still just hypothetically... Number one, everybody will know the person that chose to sit this one out. And there will be some shame and ridicule. But more importantly, no matter how strong or how much physical prowess the individual lacks, every little bit of might and effort in tandem with the rest of your team counts for something in this game that takes everybody. And the reason I was thinking about tug of war and I was thinking about this idea of people being and forming teams is because I think in our modern world, one of the things that we lose sight of in the biblical world is the notion of the collective, the collective effort, the community of faith. And we tend to individualize and personalize our faith. We think about my personal devotion. We think about my personal relationship with Jesus. We think about my salvation. We think about things in me centered terms. There was a story in the New Testament, in Mark 10, where a, a, a wealthy young man comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus the question, he says, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, first of all, he says, why do you call me good? Because Jesus, even as the Son of God, shows humility, and he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good alone even though he is the son of God. (laughs) It's funny how that happens. Anyway, that's not the point here. The point is what Jesus says after that. He says, well, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, and so on. And the young man looks at Jesus and he says, well, ever since I was a little boy, I have fulfilled and done all those commandments. And it says in the text that Jesus looked at him with love, and he says to him, there's one thing you lack. I want you to sell everything that you have, and I want you to give the proceeds to the poor, and then come follow me. And we're told by Mark that uh, the young man went away dejected, couldn't do it. Now, there's something interesting in that story. Because the young man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Who is he focused on? Me. Well, him, but you get the point. And when Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. You're an upstanding fellow Jewish young man. You know the commandments. And he's able to recite them, and he says, I've done them. And by the way, did you notice Jesus doesn't you know, say, like, no, you haven't. No, Jesus, at the very least, takes him at his word. But the commandment that Jesus gives is no longer a self-focused commandment. He tells him to sell all of his possessions and then give the proceeds away to somebody else. The man came and asked, how can I make my situation better? And Jesus said, why don't you go make somebody else's better first and then come follow me. Jesus is always teaching people to think beyond me. And that's what brings us to the Ten Commandments today. It's, it's a section in Exodus 20. Uh, the, the Israelites have been brought out of captivity from Egypt. And they have crossed the sea that God parted. And now they're on their journey and at different moments they bicker. And one point they need some water to drink and they complain to Moses because he's brought them out into nowhere and the water's bitter. It's their equivalent of going to the soda machine at a fast food restaurant and it's watered down. So then you end up just putting all the sodas in. No, I'm kidding. Is it pop or so? Anyway. Uh, so they get complainative. And that becomes a theme for the Israelites. They, they don't like their circumstances. They grumble. And yet God still comes through. The water is made sweet instead of bitter. And this goes on. And then finally God calls Moses. And, and he's, he's going to set up some agreement for the people of Israel to live amongst Yahweh, the one true God. And the agreement that we get uh, begins with the Ten Commandments that we're going to look at in just a moment. And the Ten Commandments, even that phrase, by the way, is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, A better way to say it are the ten words or phrases And to be honest with you, depending on how you count, it's hard to tell if there's really 10 or not. Maybe more, maybe less. Depends who's counting. Depends which tradition you come from, really. We'll we'll get into the Ten Commandments. But the, the, the big issue here, though, is that what God is going to establish is a pact, a treaty, an agreement between him and the people. And the people... Amongst each other, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments as these ten rules that we pluck out of context and we want them on the wall somewhere, or we want to remind ourselves of them. And today, I want us to put them back in context because they're even more profound than just ten rules. There's more to the story there. And so I'm going to admit to you, we could spend 10 weeks or more breaking down each commandment. So this is not going to be the final word on the Ten Commandments this morning. But I do want us to look at them and see what the Scripture teaches and then unpack it a little bit, especially in light of our tendency as people to think independently individualistically about our faith because as I think we'll see in a moment that's not exactly the way we ought to be thinking about them so just a little context by the way very brief context when we are given the ten commandments by God unlike the commandments that will end up following the ten uh Moses typically brings tablets and brings the word of God to the people. But God gives Moses an instruction to go down the mountainside to the people and to gather them up. And then he comes back and he gives him some more instruction. He sends them back down again. And it's when Moses is actually going back down again that God shows up and delivers the commandments by word to the people. So Moses is not an intermediary when the Ten Commandments are given. God gives them directly to the people here. And this is what it says starting in verse 1 of Exodus 20. It says, Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself. No form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish the children for their parents' sins even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals, or the immigrant who is living with you. Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire and, and try to take your neighbor's house. Do not desire or try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And that's the end of what God says. And then we're given this, starting at verse 18. It says When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the horn, and the mountains smoking, the people shook with fear and stood at a distance. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. The people really, really, really don't like this situation. It was apparently pretty scary because God's kind of a big deal. So God verbalizes to the people, they've been set up And if you read chapter 19 in advance of what God says there, um, Moses is called to gather the people, and they're actually partitioned off from coming too close because if they come too close and even touch the mountainside, which has been made holy because of God's presence being near, uh, they have to be put to death. And if anybody touches the people that touch the mountainside, they have to be put to death. And if an animal accidentally touches the mountainside, the animal has to be put to death. And if you accidentally uh, touch your animal that has touched the mountain, you get the point. It's not a good situation. So God tells Moses to keep the people at a distance. And so not only that, but then we find out that God's presence brings about shaking and rattling and thunder and all these these things, and the people are just terrified. And the people are gathered together in this terrified state, and God speaks directly to them. Now later on in Exodus, we're going to find out that uh, these commandments will be put on stone tablets If you've ever seen artistic depictions or films that portray this situation, you know, we think about the the two headstones that have, you know, it's kind of like five commands and then five commands. Uh, The problem is that's not really a good accurate portrait because God probably inscribed on both sides of the tablets. And the reason that there were two tablets is not because they didn't all fit on one, it was because God was making a pact, a treaty with the people with these commandments. And in ancient times, when you developed some sort of pact or treaty, you inscribed it on stone tablets. But much like any good record keeping, you want to make sure all parties involved have a copy. have got to have one for God, and you've got to have one for the people. So two If you remember, and if you don't, God reminds you, and the Israelites here, he starts out by saying that he is the Lord who brought the people out of Egypt. Everything in the Ten Commandments is predicated on who God is. It's almost as if God is saying, I have brought you freedom from enslavement from a bad, vile, horrible power. And I'm giving you freedom to live under my pact, a loving God. But just so you know, if you choose to, it's going to be serious, serious business here. And he gathers the people together. So, Again, and I like to say this, even in New Testament, like when you see Paul give commands in his letters, there's a collective to these rules. This isn't just somebody hearing individual rules for themselves. It's meant to be heard and honored as a community. And by the way, if you read the Old Testament and the story of Israel, you will find that when one person in the community stumbles, it has an impact on everybody. Not a good situation. So, you know, if you're hearing these rules from God, not only are you petrified by just God's awesomeness, but you have to be thinking to yourself, hmm, these rules cover a lot of ground and well I'm a pretty good person myself so I'm never going to break any of them but my buddy Joe over here I'm not sure if he's going to do I'm not sure how he's going to do and that's going to reflect very poorly on me you start to worry about the whole teamwork angle here and that isn't even getting to the rules themselves so let's do that shall we The first, the first rule from God, if we go back to verse 2 here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then moving on. You must have no other gods before me. And he goes on to effectively say you should not make an idol for yourself Uh, No form whatsoever of anything in the sky above Or on the earth below Or in the waters under the earth Do not bow down to them Or worship them because I the Lord your God Am a passionate God I punish children for their parents' sins Even to the third and fourth generations Of those who hate me Let's pause right there for just a moment Again, you know what I said at the beginning There's ten depending on how you count Depending on where you decide to stop At what rule And by the way, within these rules here, or the rule, as, it, as it's kind of constructed here, uh, we get all sorts of things that have become part of uh, church theological tradition or arguments. For instance, did you know that in some denominations, if you go to a church building, you will find pictures of Jesus and the disciples and all sorts of amazing art everywhere. And then when the Reformation came along... Uh, there were people that looked at this commandment and said, ah, we can't have any of that. You know why? Because they're making images. And if you make an image of something, you might worship it. But the thing is, is that takes something that God is saying in here, again, out of context. See, in this world, in the world that the Israelites are residing, there are God's Everywhere, at least so the people believe, including, by the way, the Israelites. They're being called out of this world and into a world where they realize there is one true God and they're to worship him only. And so the problem is, is that in this world of many gods, lowercase g, people create little figures and statues and 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 they say this is this, this is the sun god here and this is the god of the wind and this is the god of your favorite tree over here and people start worshiping these idols these images these man crafted objects as deities the god says uh There may be a bunch of little figurines and statues out there. But none of them brought you out of Egypt. I did. I am. I am Yahweh. I brought you out with a strong arm. A mighty hand. I am the only one worthy of worship. You will have no other god beside me. You will not create any other god. Gods or images of gods, and you will definitely not bow down and worship them, so again, there can be like three rules there, there can be one, but you get the point: God is God, and no one else, and no other thing is, and only God is to be worshipped there 's the rule, so he he says he punishes uh The children for their parents sins of the third and fourth generation. But then he gives a a hope in the next verse here that he's loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then in verse 7 here, uh, we get uh, another command. And this one's fun because this is the command where everybody worries they've broken it if they say the wrong word after they've stubbed their toe. It's okay if you laugh. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. Most translations don't really carry the full weight of what God is doing here. If you go over to Exodus chapter 28 and the priestly garments are described, there's a word that gets used when it talks about the ornaments that the priests have to wear that have the inscriptions of the 12 tribes on them. And it says that the priests have to bear those ornaments. Well, it turns out that in Hebrew, the the word here is the same. It really says, do not bear the Lord's name as if it had no significance. So, uh, yes, you should not uh, say God or, or Jesus flippantly or after you've stubbed your toe and add a word you shouldn't use along with it. But this commandment runs deeper than that. Because if you are part of this group that's accepting this treaty with God, then it means that you, as a people, a chosen people, bear his name, the name of Yahweh. You are his chosen people. And that means that how you live, how you choose to live, Whether you choose to honor God with your life, to follow these commands, determines whether or not you are or are not breaking this command. Not simply whether you've said the wrong word or not. Yeah, I know we all hear the Sermon on the Mount, which we did, you know, a couple months ago, and we think Jesus makes things harder for people. Well, the thing is, oftentimes we think that because we miss the high bar God has already set with the rules. Going on to the next one here. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Now, he goes on here, God does, and he adds in that the individuals should keep the Sabbath, but he includes and says, by the way, not just you, but everyone in your household. Not you, your, not your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals, or the immigrant who is living with you. Why? Why would he include this? I've seen the Sabbath rule in modern business parlance uh, kind of used and abused. You get the, the upper echelon, big wig guy, He's figured out how to live the four-hour work week. He's got a napping station in his office because you've got to have your sleep. But the company's got to keep going so everyone else is going to do the work. The Sabbath isn't just for you or me. We are to make sure It's for everybody else in the community. Remember what Jesus said? God did not make the man for Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. God is basically setting up a scenario when he worked for six days and chose to rest. And it's not because God needed a nap. There's more to it than that. There's the enjoyment of your labor, the ability to sit back and take the work in that you've done. And not only is God making it a rule that people are to follow, but by making it a rule, it's forcing people that might want to take advantage of it and have their own break and not give it to other people a problem. Because here's the thing if you're male or female servant, is out working, because you're taking your relaxation time, guess who's going to be in trouble? You are too, because the whole community's in trouble if anybody breaks the rule. Teamwork makes the dream work. That's my bottom line, so no, it's not. Close, though. Moving on to the uh, next command here. Uh, honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. The command that apparently was only for children. No, it was for everybody. Now why? What's, what's to this command here? Well, yes, of course, honor your mother and your father. You know, don't backtalk, don't be a jerk, all those sorts of things. But again, it runs deeper than that. By honoring your father and your mother, you uphold the tradition that they are going to pass down. They are going to pass down a tradition of faith. Remember, uh, after uh, or before God parted the sea, he said that you've got to uh, ransom your firstborn to him. They belong to him, remember? Like, God's whole idea is to continue to pass down his rule to his people. That's why he's always talking about this generation stuff here. God's desire is to be the God of the people for good. Generation after generation. See, we often see this, and it says so that your life will be long on the fertile land, and, and we read that, and we say, yeah, exactly. Like, Don't backtalk your mom, or your life's going to be shortened. But actually, it's thinking more collectively speaking here than an individual preserving their life it's about the people preserving their lives the next generation and the next generation if you fail to honor your mother and your father by disobeying their faith and the things god has given to them and passed down you run the risk of being in that third or fourth generation that gets punished you don't want that so honor your mother and your father the next one well it's pretty self explanatory don't kill or don't murder depending on your translation there what's the point of this one I don't have anything real deep to say other than you're preserving the right to live for somebody else by not getting so agitated that you take their life And by the way, you're not passing judgment by killing somebody else and leaving judgment up to God if they've offended you in some way. Not only is your life important to God, but so is theirs, so don't take it. And then he moves on. Do not commit adultery. This is very, very simple. In this community... In God's rule, marriage is one man and one woman for life. And if you are an individual that has eyes for somebody else's spouse, don't do that. That's a no no. Again, because we're not just protecting ourselves, but we're protecting other people. You don't take what is somebody else's. Which is funny don't take what somebody else's. Well, eh, here's the next one do not steal. You're hungry for an apple, you don't have one, you see somebody else does, don't go take theirs. By the way, God is the provider here, so, you know, if you go stealing other people's things, there's also a little bit of a hint of lack of trust that God's going to provide here. And then we go on to verse 16, do not testify falsely against your neighbor, Again, we we get into this one and, and normally we think about just don't lie, like don't tell a little white lie. But again, in a community setting, in a packed sort of setting, this runs deeper than just telling a lie and it means more about don't falsely accuse your neighbor of wrongdoing. Look out for your brother or sister in the community. See, they didn't have DNA tests and lie detectors to prove things. Your word meant something, and if you misuse your word and you accuse someone else falsely of doing something, you could bring them into judgment for no good reason. Don't do it. And then we get to verse 17, and, and this is the, the, so the ones that we just looked at, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, uh, they're, they're things that you, you either just, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, I'm not going to do those things, but these last commands here, or command depending on how you want to count, again, is that these have to do with up here and here. I don't know if you've thought about that before. Do not desire to try to take your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Do not desire. Well, we've, we've heard it do not covet. See, you might be really, really good at doing the ones that are just really obvious. Like maybe you haven't murdered anybody or committed adultery or stolen anything. Maybe you haven't falsely accused somebody. Wonderful. But here's the thing. You ever thought about wanting to do those things? Maybe even you haven't plotted it out. You just got really mad at someone one day. You know, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something about that. You know, Uh, you've heard it said, do not... Murder, But I say if you even, you know, hate your brother or sister. Anybody ever got so angry, hateful before? Yep, yep, God's dealing with that here. So we're not just dealing with the outer world. We're dealing with our inner world. And the problem is, is if you don't deal with this stuff here, the outward stuff starts to precipitate. And then you start... Raining in on somebody else's well being and life. And if you start doing those things you ought not to do, you end up putting the entire community in harm's way. And let's remember at the end of this how the people responded. Well, they responded uh, by witnessing everything and they shook with fear. And they stood at a distance and then they clamored for Moses to be the one to talk to them so that they didn't have to be afraid of God anymore. Because really at the end of the day there are two issues going on here. One is the people are frightened by God's awesomeness. But now they have this treaty that they have to live by in order to be a good community of faith and to not ruin life, not only for themselves, but for other people. It's a pretty tall order. So what's the deal with this? Well, I want to make a claim here. Being a disciple of Jesus is a team sport, but the stakes are higher and the reward is is far greater than a simple game. The stakes are higher, and the reward is far greater than a game. See, our faith is not just about what I get. It's about what we give to God, and what we give to our brothers and sisters in the faith, and even to the people that haven't come to faith yet. It's not about me. It's about us in uh, in Matthew twenty two, uh, a a religious leader. This the story also happens in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, comes to test Jesus and, and asks Jesus what the greatest command is. And Luke goes further in describing the thing as Jesus tells uh, a parable. But in Matthew twenty two. Uh, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 and says, uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Is the first and greatest command. And the second is like it. He says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, by the way, Jesus, when he was asked what are the greatest commandment is, didn't quote any of these. He gave a summary statement from somewhere else in Scripture. And what did it boil down to? Loving God and loving people. And scripture is pretty consistent. Because when you look at the Ten Commandments in context, they are giving color to the greatest commands. Love God, love people. Worship God and God alone. Do not bear his name poorly, represent him well. Do not infringe on the lives of other people. You keep the Sabbath, let them keep it. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie, do not steal. And even inside your own mind, your own heart, be satisfied with what God has given. Which we already know up to this point that the people don't do a good job of that. Because they're already complaining about the water being a bit too bitter. They didn't get Fuji. Imagine what it would look like if we approached our faith not as a personal devotion but as a life honoring God and being about upholding other people who are also trying to aim to honor God. Imagine what the church would look like if we took this collective attitude toward the living out of our faith that we realize that it's not just about whether I've kept the commandments, whether I've done the do's or didn't do the don'ts, but I think about other people. See, the heart of Jesus with the rich young man was not that the person failed at keeping the commandments himself, but he was only concerned about what he got out of it. But God, from the get-go, when he makes the great pact the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue with the people. It ends up being about him and us collectively. That is what God has always been about. That is what our faith is about. Let us live like that from this point forward. Each week we take communion together as a church family. And uh, hopefully you got a communion packet when you came in. Jesus uh, gave the bread and, and, and the, the cup to his disciples and said, Do this in remembrance of me. And uh, yes, by the way, when he said, Do this in remembrance of me, uh, it was more of a, Y'all do this in remembrance of me. It was a collective thing. Communion wasn't a private institution where we do a private obedience of faith. It was a collective proclamation of what God has done for us. And so in a moment, we're going to take communion together as a church family. And I want us to take a moment to ponder what it means that God has done this for us and what that means for those that are not part of us yet. And after that, we'll take communion together. I invite you to take and eat this bread. This is his body, which is given for us. In the same way, I invite you to take and drink from this cup, this blood poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, we thank you for uh, the high bar in life that you've called your people too, whether it started with the Israelites or whether it is upheld for the church as Jesus himself did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But I also thank you, God, that in your wisdom, what you've set up is not just a life of personal and private religious devotion but a life that is called to be a light to the world. It is called to uh, be done in locked arms to spur one another on to love and good deeds. That is a life uh, called to not only do and be good, but to do good and be good for others. And so God, I just pray that as we leave this space today and we reflect on these commandments that uh, many of us might know by heart, and and even if we don't, we've we've heard about them. I pray, God, that uh, you will help us to see them with fresh eyes, help us to uh, guide our hearts toward you and toward others, and uh, to invite others into this wonderful, abundant life that you've called us to and made a way for us to live. We pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.